Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston. And I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, welcome back to Boston Confidential. This week we're covering part two of the Sean Ellis Trial 4 case. We call it the Trial 4 case because that's the name of the series on Netflix originally produced by HBO. It's a docu-series on the murder of John Mulligan in 1993. John Mulligan was a Boston police detective working a private paid detail overnight in a Walgreens parking lot. And he was shot, brutally shot five times in the face as he slept. And Terry Patterson and Sean Ellis were convicted as a joint venture homicide in this case. But before we get back into the case, guys, just a few housekeeping things. In my last episode, the first part of the Sean Ellis case, I predicted that cancel culture would come for Boston Confidential. It has in some capacity. I'm getting an alarming number of emails saying that I'm racist for my view on this case. I don't believe that's true. I'm trying to look at the facts only on this case. This week, we're going to get in more of what happened after the case when the corruption came to light. I have to tell you, I'm being accused of being a flag waver for the police department. Well, I'll have to respond to that by telling you, go listen to the second episode on the Teresa Corley case and ask the Bellingham police if I'm waving their flag because I'm not. This cancel culture drama is starting to manifest itself in negative reviews. And it's a little crazy. So I've received a few negative reviews. One of them was actually from a comment I made on the previous episode about making a murderer. So she's giving me a bad review for a case I didn't really even cover. But so what I'm asking you guys today, if you're a fan of the show, if you can do me a favor is to go on Apple and write a five-star review if you can. I'd really appreciate it. And speaking of reviews, it's kind of funny. I got a one-star review from a woman, or at least I believe it's a woman, who had contacted the show telling me how much she loved it and all this, and she was interested in the forensic angle and was interested in having me help her set up her own podcast. She wanted to be a researcher on this podcast and all of a sudden now I get a one-star review. I think she said I run the podcast like I'm sitting at a bar next to a buddy. And you want to know what? That's exactly what I envisioned when I started Boston Confidential. So that would be a great review. Just jack it up by four stars. All right, guys, we're getting a tremendous response to the first episode on Sean Ellis and Trial 4. Some people who can't speak in other venues have reached out to me and said that they have the same misgivings of this case. 
but any dissension from the local orthodoxy on this case brands you a racist. Worse, I don't know if you can be anything worse. They throw that word around simply due to the fact that you disagree with them. Simple political disagreement or disagreement on anything in this vein brands you a racist. What they're trying to do is shut you up. That's not going to happen here. Again, I have to ask, where's the racism in the case? Is it from Terry Patterson, his co-defendant, who said that he was there when Sean Ellis shot Detective Mulligan in the face? Was it from Latia Walker, who testified that her boyfriend, Sean Ellis, brought the guns into the house and her fingerprint ended up on one of them? And the gun with her fingerprint was the one used to shoot Detective Mulligan in the face? Was that racism? Was it racism when Uncle Dave supplied supremely accurate information as to how these guns would be found? He said they'd be found separately, but within the same lot near Sean Ellis's apartment, and then they were. Was that racist? Was it racist for Rosa Sanchez to pick Mr. Ellis out of a lineup twice? And if you saw the animated version of what happened in this case, she gets a pretty good look at him, guys. Was that racist that she pointed the finger at him? I'd really like to get back to the point where legitimate discourse can happen. But when any, and I mean any disagreement, political or otherwise, comes up, one side of the aisle blames you and calls you the most heinous names we have in our lexicon. I hope it stops one day. Before we move on, guys, I just wanted to point out one other moment in this absurd docudrama. And this is one of the most absurd moments I can remember within it. It's season one, episode three, at about 26 minutes, 55 seconds. And this portion of the film pertains to Latia Walker's testimony when she testified against Sean Ellis. I ask you to go back, especially if you are in favor of voting innocent for Sean Ellis, if you support his innocence, go back and watch this exchange, right? This woman had to tell the truth because her fingerprints were on the gun. So listen to this whole exchange. It's absurd. This is one of the most corrupt moments I've seen on TV since Bill Clinton said, I didn't have relations with that woman. This comes close. This is off the scale in terms of bullshit. I'm sorry. So listen to what is said and implied during this transaction, this communication. Latia Walker goes through what she says happened. At a certain point, the police or the district attorney want to take her fingerprints, and she says she doesn't have a problem with it. So she consented to having her fingerprints taken at the courthouse. And why wouldn't the police want her fingerprints? She is the girlfriend of somebody who is accused of killing a police officer, who, at least in his orbit, there was two other murders the week before. So they want a full investigation on this. So yeah, he's over your house and you're going to get fingerprinted. And you did, and you consented to it. So she consents to being fingerprinted. And then they find the guns, and lo and behold, her fingerprint is on one of the clips in the magazine. And her fingerprint is on the gun that shot Mulligan in the face five times. Pretty big deal, guys. 
So she doesn't come right out and say it, but she's accusing the Boston police and the district attorney's office of taking her fingerprint, right, from the fingerprint card and putting it on that weapon. She goes on to say, all those people who allegedly touched the gun, only my fingerprint shows up. And that's the conspiracy here. Well, dumbass, maybe those other guys who actually did the murder wiped the guns down first, then you touched it last. How about that? Also during this time frame, Latia Walker says that the district attorney was pressuring her. She says they were pressuring her, but they didn't tell her what to say. So it's just so contradictory, but it gets by you if you're not watching. And I was watching it with a critical eye. But if you're watching this case, sitting home in Iowa, saying, wow, oh, they pressured her? How did they pressure her? She doesn't say how they pressured her, right? She is in the middle of a murder investigation, and her prints come up on the weapon that killed the police officer, and they offer her protection if she testifies against Sean, right? They used to call that compassion. They used to call that caring and safety, right? What happened? Now that's pressure. She says, they said they were going to take my kid. They implied they were going to take my kid. Yeah. If you're in the middle of an investigation, right, where your boyfriend who's often at your house killed a police officer, maybe the Department of Family Services should be notified that A, you have illegal guns in the house, B, you're part of a murder investigation, and C, you have several known felons in out of your house. Maybe that is a concern of the Department of Youth Services, Department of Child Services, whatever. So they portray offering her relocation and protection from Sean Ellis as some type of affront to her, as some type of pressure. It's insane. So go back and review her actual testimony. They did that animation thing, and they tried to make her look, or at least visually, you know, like a child. And I know she was a young kid at the time, but I believe she testified truthfully. This is the way I believe it went. Her fingerprint comes up on the gun. The police go to her and say, you're either a witness or a murderer. Which one is it? And she told the truth. She wasn't a murderer, but she was a witness. She stated that Sean brought the guns to the house and put them under a table in her bedroom. And at a certain point, she must have touched them. She described the guns. Again, just before that, she said the district attorney did not tell her what to say. So come on, guys. I mean, she testified truthfully. And what I think she saw happening before her, her boyfriend was about to go away for murder. And she saw the guns and she had touched the guns. So she knew that he was, in fact, going away because he did use those guns in the murder. Terry Patterson had already gone away. So she prepared for Sean Ellis to be going away and had to tell the truth because she had to protect her and her kid. And if that's true, if her testimony is true, Sean Ellis is guilty. And if you ever notice, she never said, I never touched that weapon. She's never said that. She had ample opportunity during this interview, during this segment, to say, I never touched the weapon. She never said that. She was 18 or 19 at the time of the crime, right? So at the time, you could see her being frightened. And if she testified untruthfully, 
Now she's in her 40s. She's what, 46, 47 years old. She could go to the court. She could go to the Boston Globe and say, I recant my testimony. She could say, I lied. I was afraid. I was being threatened. She could file a complaint against the district attorney's office. Scott Piccio could file a complaint because if the district attorney's involved with this, right, where they took her fingerprints and <laughs> planted them on a weapon, everybody's going to jail. Let's file that complaint. They don't file those complaints, right, because it's horseshit. There's no evidence to back it up. So if you take her testimony at face value, not the testimony in the stand, but within the film itself, she says that they put her fingerprint on that gun and there's no pushback. Okay, so that's going to add the fingerprint guys to the conspiracy, the person who took them at the courthouse and likely the district attorney. So now we have a conspiracy against Sean Ellis, right? For what? Six, seven, eight people now want to put him in prison? So let's count the people who are involved in this conspiracy. First is Terry Patterson, who made up the story that he was at Walgreens and was with Sean when Sean shot him. He made that up totally. I think the police pulled him off the street, right? And just said, hey, we have this whole big story. Can you help us out? Okay, and then there's Latia Walker. Somehow she's involved in this because they were threatening to take her child be only because she was somehow involved in a massive murder investigation involving gang members. Why would anybody want to investigate your parenting skills at that level? Rosa Sanchez somehow is involved in this conspiracy. She wasn't at Walgreens to conduct her own business. She was there as part of this conspiracy. Is that what they're saying here? Was she not shopping at Walgreens? Or did she just not see Sean Ellis and Terry Patterson outside of Walgreens at Detective Mulligan's car? What are they saying here? It's like the shotgun effect. Everything's corrupt. Everything's racist. Everything's against Sean. Everybody's lying. Come on. The fingerprint guys... They're going to risk their pension for a case they know nothing about. They're going to put it on a gun. There's not even the technology to do that, guys. There's not the technology to do that now in the 21st century, right? And this is 1993. So was the technology available then? It's complete bullshit. This story holds up to no scrutiny. And Latia Walker's segment on this, you know, that I mentioned before starts at the 2655 mark of episode three is just some of the most BS I've ever seen captured on camera. So this segment ends very dramatically. They fade to black and put up a Chiron. We attempted to contact the assistant district attorney, whatever her name is, who prosecuted the case, but she declined to participate. Ooh, so spooky. But the fact remains, you have a witness right in front of you, and you don't even have the guts to ask her. She's sitting right in front of you. Did you ever touch those guns? They never ask her that crucial question. She's sitting right in front of you. All it would take, did you ever touch those guns? They never give any pushback. They just fade to black and put it on the district attorney like she did something wrong. No, Latia Walker touched those guns. That's why her fingerprint was on it. That's why she's sitting on the stand. 
they don't even have enough investigative integrity or integrity in general to ask that one question of Latia Walker. You can't ask her, did you touch those guns? One question takes less than a second. They don't even have the guts to ask the question, guys, because they can't handle the answer. If she answers the question truthfully, there's no show. There's no series. Nobody makes any money. Sean Ellis is guilty if she touched those guns. Do you understand that? That's why they didn't ask the question. That's why they didn't ask any questions of anybody in this case. I believe this story fits the old newspaper axiom that this story is too good to investigate, right? Because it hits on all the buttons in Boston, race, crime corruption, right? So you don't want to investigate it too thoroughly because it all falls apart. That's why there is no questions of these witnesses or interviewees. Guys, I dare you. I dare you to go back and watch a segment with Latia Walker and tell me I'm not right. There is no pushback on this story. She has a massively shaky story. The police took her fingerprints and then put them on the gun. Come on. Just further evidence on how full of shit this whole series is. Nobody's recanted. Uncle Dave hasn't recanted, and he had an opportunity to do so. Latia Walker had an opportunity to say, I didn't touch those guns. She said everything else but that, but she's never said, I've never touched those guns, despite having ample opportunity to do so. All right, guys, I want to move on to another area of this film. One of the things that I found most alarming was the segment that featured Reverend Eugene Rivers of Roxbury or Dorchester. He's a very prominent member of the black clergy in that neighborhood, and he's very well respected, but he veered off into some nonsense that I really couldn't believe was kept in this film. At a certain point, he gets to the point where he says, the Irish always need somebody to fight. So what he was alluding to was the fact that he thinks the Boston power structure, the police district attorney, is filled with white Irish people. Keep in mind that for the majority of this case, we had a black district attorney, so I don't really know where that comes from, but he goes on and on about the Irish always needing somebody to fight, I guess. So that stereotype is pretty hurtful for the Irish community, but I guess it's all right to offend white Irish people in Boston because if he put any other ethnicity into that stereotype, I think they'd be held to pay. And if he put African-Americans into that stereotype, I think you'd have a near riot on your hands. But since Reverend Rivers said it, I guess it's okay. Some people can say whatever they want with no repercussions. Stereotyping is good for some demographics, but not good for others. So I guess that's where we are in society. All right, guys, one other thing before we get on to the corruption of a Sarah and Robinson, the Boston detectives in this case. One thing that had occurred to me, and I don't know if it occurred to you while you were watching it, right? They tried to portray Mulligan's alleged corruption as a motive in this case. Right? And it's kind of smoke and mirrors because this is a stranger-on-stranger stranger homicide. Terry Patterson and Sean Ellis had never met Detective Mulligan. They don't know if he's corrupt. 
it has no bearing on this case. So yes, Mulligan may or may not be a corrupt detective, right? But honestly, what difference does it make in terms of the murder itself? This was a robbery. They killed him in cold blood for his weapon. So Sean's attorney says, yeah, we should have been able to explore that at trial. But again, what difference does it make if this was a stranger-on-stranger stranger homicide? And what difference would it make, right, after Latia Walker's fingerprint comes on it? There's no connection here to Mulligan's alleged corruption. All right, I'm going to leave that there. Think on that a little bit. That occurred to me as I was watching, and I think the second time. But let's move on to the corruption in this case by Asera and Robinson. Okay, guys, so I think now would be a good time to reassert my position on this case. My position on this case hasn't changed. Sean Ellis and Terry Patterson killed Detective Mulligan, and these two detectives' corruption brushed up against this case. It touched this case. There's no way around it. Detectives Sarah Robinson in Brazil, is it Brazil, Brazil? I don't know, but we'll call them Brazil for right now. So these three guys, well, let's start with Robinson and Sarah first. Robinson and Sarah in 1997 were the subject of a Boston Globe, kind of like a spotlight team article or series of articles on alleged police corruption and what they had ascertained through their research. And yes, Brazil, I'm sorry, Brazil was involved in this as well. Those three cops, Brazil, Sarah and Robinson were drug cops. They are not homicide cops, but they were assigned to this 50 or 60 man task force to find out who killed Detective Mulligan. But in 1997, the Boston Globe had done some research and they had heard some rumors about what was going on in Area E, which was like Rosendale, High Park, and all that. So they analyzed the records, the request for search warrants, and they went through all of these records and they found that these three detectives had used one confidential informant for 47 drug arrests, drug warrants, and then they'd go, you know, do the raid and whatever they got, they got. But the allegation was that that was phony, that not one person could provide that information on a citywide level. So it definitely raised some red flags. And what was alleged was they weren't seizing the money or not seizing all of the money. They were pocketing the money. That would turn out to be true, guys. And in the HBO special, they go through this story with Jose De La Rosa in 1991 that Sarah and Robinson basically abducted him off the street at gunpoint, went to his house, roughed him up, threatened him, arrested him, stole money from his house. I think he said it was $2,300 in cash and wrecked his house. And then the cops, Sarah and Robinson, just don't show up to court. And it takes until 1997 for the criminal case to be dismissed because Sarah Robinson never showed up. Now, if this story is accurate, this is a civil rights violation. These guys should do 25 years alone for what they did to Jose De La Rosa, if that's accurate. Now, if you go through all of that segment at the end, it says Jose De La Rosa eventually accepted a settlement, a legal settlement from the city of Boston 
but I hate to be the turd in the punch bowl here. He had accepted a settlement for $62,500 for what amounts to a massive civil rights violation. I don't know what happened here. If De La Rosa had the world's worst civil attorney in American legal history, or there's something more to this case, because that settlement would normally be in the millions if what he had told the producers of Trial 4 is accurate. I'm not saying he's lying. I'm saying there may be more to that story. Why such a low settlement for such an offense against Mr. De La Rosa? If that story is accurate or even half accurate, those two cops, Sarah and Robinson, should be doing 30 years right now, but they're not. All right, so 97, the story comes out in the Globe, and the U.S. attorney is reading the Globe that day and finds this quite interesting. Pretty soon thereafter, both Sarah Robinson and Brazil are arrested and indicted for various heavy counts of corruption. There was tax evasion, corruption, just all kinds of stuff. I can't even tell you how many counts. There was 27 counts in total, and I think they were all felonies. So all of these felonies, all of these counts had to do with their drug work, not the work they had done on the Ellis case, right? I know they worked this case and they had some big parts in it, but they were part of a 50 or 60 man task force. And one of the problems in the Ellis case is a Sarah is virtually related to Rosa Sanchez. Now, if you remember, Rosa Sanchez didn't alert Sarah right away, but he ended up guiding her through the identification process. So is that tainted? I'd have to say yes. You'd have to give this a new trial. You'd have to give Sean Ellis a new trial because those three corrupt bastards touched his case. I'm sorry. Again, more than one thing can be true at the same time. Those two gang members, Terry Patterson and Sean Ellis, shot Detective Mulligan five times in the face. And these detectives, these corrupt detectives, worked on the investigation. So you can't trust it. You can't trust anything they've worked on. And I'm sorry. So as these three upstanding citizens proceed through the judicial process, Detective Brazil is offered immunity and he accepts it. So he's not going to jail and I don't think they're going to take his pension. I think that was the deal. And the deal was that he'd testify against Sarah and Robinson. When this came to light, Sarah and Robinson end up taking a plea deal to the 27 counts of corruption, tax evasion, all kinds of stuff, guys. And Sarah and Robinson are sentenced to three years in the federal joint followed by three years probation. They had about $100,000 each to pay back in restitution. And after that, I guess they'd be free to go. Detective Brazil did fulfill his end of the bargain and he allocuted as to what he did and what the other detectives did. And he was now immune from prosecution and did not have to resign from the Boston Police Department, but he did so. People still think he's in Massachusetts, but nobody really knows where. I think Brazil is in his early 70s now, and he's still collecting a pension. To be quite frank, all three sentences are just way too short. Three years for what they did. I mean, does that even account for what they did to Jose De La Rosa, if that's true? 
and there was a thousand Jose De La Rosas in this case. So they were pretty smart to take that deal because they were going to do more than 10 years in prison, maybe a lot more than that. So I don't see any other remedy in this case but another trial. And so as this rolls up to like 2018, Sean Ellis is granted a new trial because his attorney, Scarpaccio, sorry, I know I butcher that, found some documentation that Mulligan had some involvement with a Sarah and Robinson on some of these scams. I don't know how well it was proven, but it was enough to get Sean Ellis a new trial. And again, this is the fourth trial. And I want to be clear here. I do not believe it's ethical to try somebody four times for the same offense. It just gives the state way too much power. And it goes against how we set our system up. An individual simply doesn't have the wherewithal to go up against the entirety of the government in a trial for your life four times. So the Boston police and the district attorney's office elected not to go to trial for the fourth time and Sean Ellis is a free man today. So it wasn't just the Ellis case that fell apart, right? This is a homicide, a brutal homicide of a Boston police detective. And I think that's kind of the punishment here, that that case fell apart, that the Boston police have to abide that, right? That's the actual punishment here. The people who murdered your brother are walking free because some of your brothers are trying to fill their pockets illegally. That's the real punishment here. Two murderers go free. A lot of other cases that these guys worked on went south. I think all of them did, really. And all the people they had convicted previously have a claim against these detectives. I don't know how much money the Boston Police Department and the city of Boston paid out due to these three people, but it's got to be astronomical. So again, guys, more than one thing can be correct and accurate at the same time. Those, detect those corrupt detectives worked this case, and Sean Ellis and Terry Patterson killed Detective Mulligan. That's where I stand. Watch this trial for with a critical eye, and I think you'll end up agreeing with me. But I'm going to leave you there. If you need to get a hold of me, feel free to email me anytime, Barry at bostonconfidential.net. That's Barry at bostonconfidential.net. And if you get an opportunity, and even if you don't get an opportunity, I want you to go and leave me a review on Apple. Five stars, if you would. All right, guys, have a good weekend, and I'll see you on the flip side. We're on to the next one.